here, you, you, you hump it with the axe. Like, that's what you do here. Like, it's totally different. And how do you get that foundation laid? You go to a place where you bring unity out of diversity. You create a common experience. You look for common bonds. And the reason I start there is because that's where John starts. For most of you, you're probably very familiar with the Gospel of John. In fact, even as I started reading it, you, you, you hear those words, in fact, the word, and many of you think to yourself, okay, I know exactly where Kevin is going today. He can't say anything I haven't heard before, but honestly, as I've been studying this and, and, and really digging into this, um, there's, there's something different going on that I think a lot of us miss. You see, many gospels begin in different places. The gospel of Matthew begins with the genealogy. The gospel of Mark begins with action, the life of Jesus, and he launches into it. The Gospel of Luke begins with um, the background of John the Baptist, but this Gospel is unique. He reaches back to the beginning of time, the beginning of history, and pulls us forward, not primarily with theology, but philosophy. He starts this letter with some philosophical truths, and the purpose of it is to bridge two opposing groups, to bring unity. You see, uh, William Barclay wrote a commentary on the Gospel of John, and in it he says, by this point in time, by the time that this letter was written, the majority of the population of Christians were primarily Greek. See, but you had these two different groups. There was a Jewish population and a Greek population. The Jewish population, when they heard the word, word, it brought ideas to their mind. It brought, in particular, two ideas that we're going to talk about just for a second as we're jumping into this. And that is this, the idea of action and authority. Action. When God spoke, things happened. In Genesis 1, it says, at the creation of all things, it says, God spoke and there was light. God spoke and there was life. God spoke and everything that he created, he said, was good. He declared it. When God spoke, action occurred. But also the idea of word carries this idea of authority. See, the word of God came through prophets. For what purpose? To give the authority of God to people. Here's how you need to behave. Here's what you need to do. And when these prophets spoke, they were speaking the word of God, and it was the authority of God given to these people. So you had that context, that mindset working, but you also had another idea. It was from the Greeks. And instead of this idea of authority and and action, they they came to it with different ideas, and that was with order and reason. There's a Greek philosopher, um, I'm sure you were reading him earlier today, um, his name is um, Heraclitus. Heraclitus, philosophy majors, no, Heraclitus, and what he said is this, that Logos, the Logos was always existent, and all things happened through this Logos. He says this, Logos was the establishing principle for all of life. See, what was, what was going on in the mind of this philosopher was this, um, he was he presented this idea, and I think you're probably familiar with this, that you can never step into the same body of water twice, like a river, because it always seems to be moving. So if you step in it one day and you kind of take a step back, everything's changing. And when he looked at the world, he says, hey, this is in constant flux. The world is in constant change. But although the world is changing, there seems to be an order, a way of thinking, a a commonality as he looked at the world. You can look at ants and see there's an order with those guys, right? You can look at bees and the way they organize themselves and say, there's order even though it's all in flux. And he says that there was something that is the root of all of this, and he called it the logos, the word, the reason. 
Stoics kind of continued to pick up this idea, and they said this, that there was an eternal reason. They didn't think the Logos as personal. It wasn't relational. But it was this original force that set everything into order. Everything um, that was in flux, it said this is the, the basic things that set, sets all of life in order. And it's between these two mindsets, this eternal world, word that is action and authority, and this Greek mindset of order and reason that John is bridging together in this section. He says, hey, I want you to tell you something about this reason. This reason, this logos, this word is primarily the foundation through which all of the world is made. He says this in verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and was not anything made apart from him. What he says is this. This word is the foundation of creation. In Proverbs three nineteen through 20, it says this. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established it in the heavens. See, what he's saying is this, um, that some word, some eternal being created everything. And when he created this world, he created it in order. From the very beginning, from the foundation of creation, there is order. And, and, and you can just see this. Um, I, there's a book by Tim Keller called The Reason for God. And he's trying to prove um, to the intellectual, why is it that we can believe that there is a creator above all of this? And one of the things he points to is this, that there are 15 constants. That if any one of these 15 constants was out by one millionth, the whole world would not stick together. There's constants like the gravitational constant, the strong and weak nuclear forces. They have precise values. And you engineers can discuss this later on. If they're out by even a a part of a million, we don't exist. Now, other people have pushed against this. Uh, Most prominently, a guy named Richard Dawkins. He's writing, he says, look, um, there are billions of universes. And across the billions of universes, um, there's an infinite number of options. And we just happen to be in the one location where all those things match up, all those things line up. Is the world um, that unique in this? And, and Richard Dawkins says, no, like this, this thing would have happened. But a response to that was um, a rebuttal by Alvin Plantiga, Plantigana says this. He gives an illustration. He says, hey, say you're playing poker with some buddies, right? And you're playing poker, you're playing cards, and you're Christians, you can play poker, it's okay. Um, and so you're sitting around there on tables, and you're dealing out the cards, and every time your buddy deals out all the hands, he gets four aces every time. He's like, oh my gosh, I, I won again. You play another hand, four aces, another hand, four aces, another hand, four aces. At a point, you would go, bro, I'm going to take you outside and shoot you. Like, why are you continuing to cheat? You're impressive, <laughs> But why are you cheating? You would immediately say, you're cheating. But if he responded like Richard Dawkins, hey, there's an infinite number of universes out there, my friends. And uh, it just so happens in this universe that I'm always lining up four aces. I mean, wow, this is incredible. You would say, no, you're cheating. If all the dials matched up that well, you would say, something's going on here. It seems to be that there's wisdom behind the creation. It seems that there's, at the foundation of reality, at the foundation of all things, there's something holding it together. But also, just think about it this way. Who are the wisest people in our culture? Who are the people, let me ask it this way, 
that we would gladly pay them lots of money for their knowledge. Who are the people? Some of them are in this room in the future. They're doctors, engineers, and scientists. Now, what do those folks do? They don't necessarily come up with anything. All they do is tell us about how this creative order works. Doctors, you don't have to be brilliant to be a doctor. All you need to do is take what you learn and apply it, what you learn about this universe, and apply it to us. If you want to be a great engineer, you don't need to be revolutionary. You just need to make sure that building stands, right? You apply the laws of gravity and different uh, physical laws to make sure this thing fits. My sister is a mechanical engineer. She got her PhD from Berkeley. She's a smart chica, right? She got this thing, and she was telling me about what she's studying. She's like, I'm studying the effects of heat on porous media. And I'm like, I was a poli-sci major. I don't know what you're saying. Uh, She's like, well, look, um, I work at a at a nuclear facility called Sandia Labs. And if those things blow up, that will be bad. I'm like, okay, you're speaking my language, okay. And, and she's like, I want to make sure our structures can withhold that blast. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. See, why is she paid good money? Because she knows how this world works. In the foundation of reality, what we have is creative order, and it's created in wisdom. It continues in a normal way. You can study it and know how it will function over and over and over again. There is order. There is reason in this creation. But secondly, he says this. um, Beyond that, there was wisdom in the foundation of all things. It says, verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He says that at the foundation of all things was life, and this life was the light of men. What he's saying is this. In the beginning, this logos, this wisdom from God, not only set creative order in motion, he set a moral order in motion. You see, at the foundation of all of reality is also a moral compass, a moral reality. See, the word light refers um, to understanding, to wisdom. Psalm 119, 130 says this, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. See, when God speaks wisdom, he is showing you how things work. He's giving you understanding into how the world is supposed to function. It's also moral rightness. In Isaiah 5, 20, it says this, Woe to those who call evil good, And good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Proverbs 2 13 says this For those who leave the path of the upright to walk in darkness. Ecclesiastes 2 14 says this The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. What's the point, Kevin? He's saying this. At the foundation of all of reality is not just a a, a world that functions in order. There's an order of morality that this world functions in. There's a way to interact with people that will produce life, and there's a way that that you can interact with people and it will produce death. And I think you've seen that. Um, You may have done that with your roommates, right? This year, um, there's a way that you can approach your roommate and say, hey, you need to clean the dishes, you moron, and, and that will go over in one way. Now, if you live with a bunch of um, 
frat guys, that may fly very well, or a bunch of like athletes, that type of guy. Um, if you don't, it won't work so well. If you're a girl, and you go to your girl roommate, and you'd be like, you are a moron, um, that will leave her crying, or she will get all of your friends against you, and she'll talk, right? I mean, so, so there's a moral rightness. And what he's saying is, that there's a light. There's a way to walk in a moral right way that will produce light and life in you, and there's a way to walk that won't. Um, it says this at the end of it, there's a quality of life that this word can bring you. In Psalm 34, 12 through 13, it says this, who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceit. Proverbs 3.21 says this, My son, let them not vanish from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion so that you may be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Hey, this world is founded in a creative order and a moral order. And if you go outside of those bounds, it will produce destruction. You may say, Kevin, I don't believe that. Because we live in a culture that doesn't buy that. We live in a world that'll say, hey, look, Kevin, 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 look, there's moral relativism. Whatever you do is good for you. Whatever that person does is good for them. That we, We've all got this kind of moral compass. We can kind of go wherever, whatever direction we want. Um, there's a, a, an apologist by the name of Ravi Zacharias, and he is brilliant. I encourage you to listen to him. And one of the things he, he quotes is uh, Malcolm Muggeridge all the time. He was a writer, kind of a satirist. And Muggeridge says this, look, we have educated ourselves into imbecility. Well, what does he mean by that? That's complicated. Yes, what he means is this. We send our brightest minds to our best universities. And you know what we tell them? All morality is relative. And they graduate from those universities and they go be in, they're in businesses, they're in companies, they're the movers and shakers, they're setting the order of the company and they run into a moral failure. Several years ago, it was Enron. And that was a joke back in the day. As, as Enron, this amazing company, we're lying about the reports and all of a sudden we take all of those men that had been educated in the best universities. Hey, morality is relative, except when you play it out in your world and what you find out we don't like that. When you steal money for yourself, when you harbor things for yourself, when, when life is not as it should be, we're going to hold you accountable to that. On whose morality? You see, everyone wants a moral life. Everyone does. You see, if you see a husband and he loves his wife, like he brings her up here and, and he says to her, you know, this is my beautiful, wonderful wife, and it doesn't matter whether she's beautiful or wonderful, what matters is that he thinks so, you celebrate that. You say, that is right. As you see a dad bring his little son up here and talk about his son and celebrate his son, you say, hey, there's something right about that. See, in our world, we give the highest medal of honor, the highest medal we can give, called the medal of honor, to those who sacrifice their life for the sake of others. And what we say is, hey, there is something right about that. I read an article it was interesting, uh, the, the Chinese government has, has, has moved, as you know, in, in kind of the more capitalistic society, more capitalistic culture, like opening up the, the boundaries. Some of you may be um, Chinese in, in this room, and, and so I don't know all the details around it, but I do know that there was one major event that occurred, and I have the article here if someone wants to read it later on. 
And it's the art, title of the article is this, China's Come to Jesus Moment. And what, what happens is, is there was a major event that happened in China where a man was driving down the road and he hit a two-year-old girl. And he saw that she was still alive. And so he threw his car into reverse and backed over her and then drove off. Eighteen bystanders stood there and kept walking and did nothing. I mean, this was all over Chinese news. Everyone in China was going, this was horrendous. Eighteen bystanders did nothing. And the cabbie, I think it was a cab person, was, was interviewed later on. He said, look, I face um, lower consequences for a dead child than I would a live child. So I killed her. And so with that in their minds, the Chinese government sent 11 officials to Africa, to Nairobi, Kenya. And they went and they interviewed um, members of the Anglican Church. And they went and interviewed them for this purpose. Because the, the minister of religion said this, religion is good for development. They also said this, the old moral system doesn't work anymore. And a new one has to be established. How do we establish a moral compass in our world when we basically told everyone, hey, you can do what you want, survival of the fittest, hey, whatever's good for you is good for you. How do you develop a moral culture in there? They're going, we have no clue. And so their hope is to maybe allow Christians to come in. They find that the Chinese Christian workers are moral. They have this moral compass that guides their life, and they say, that is wonderful. That's what we want. You see, at the foundation of creation is a wisdom, and it is a, a wisdom that founds this world in order. It's a moral order that is beautiful, that everyone acknowledges and says, that's what I want in the world. And lastly, he says this, that moral order, that compass, isn't just statements that you need to adhere to. I sent a person to embody them. I sent a man. I sent an individual. I sent someone to the earth, not just to tell you things to do, but model this. Mahatma Gandhi said of Jesus Christ this, if everyone would just live by the Sermon on the Mount, if they would just follow the life of this Jesus, we would not only solve all of our problems in in India, but all the problems of the world. You see, the person of Jesus was so revolutionary, and he lived a life that was brilliant. Read the Gospels, right? Everyone tried to trap Jesus in a, in a statement, right? They, were, they, they come up to him and they're like, hey, um, wh- why are you doing this thing? And he'd be like, shabam, believe this. Where's your coin, all right? And he would, he would say a word and they would just be like, oh my gosh, you know? And, and, and he would be brilliant in his argumentation. Everyone in the world, when they look at the words of Jesus, even Muslims say, this man was surely a prophet from God. He was brilliant. But he also lived a beautiful life. More than once in his life, he would stand up and he would say, which one of you convicts me of sin? Which one of you? How many of you would be willingly do that, right? Stand up here. Which one of you convicts me? Okay, well, and you know, like we'd run off to the side. There's no way that we would stand up here and say, have the audacity to say something like that. But Jesus stood in front of crowds of thousands and called them out. Which one of you? And even when they were putting him to death, the leaders the Roman leaders said this, I, I don't find anything wrong within him. 
You see, he lived a brilliant life and a beautiful life. He embodied both all of the, the wisdom of this creation and the wisdom in morality in a person himself. And it says this of him, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world, verse 9. He was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. You see, this wisdom was embodied perfectly in this person. But you know what the problem is? Although there was this true light that came into the world that lived the life that honestly every one of us would say, that was amazing. It says humanity as a whole rejected him. Why? You ever, you ever wondered that? I mean, not, not the Bible church answer, like, oh, they, they know because he was a good guy. I don't, I don't know. I mean, growing up, I grew up in a, in a kind of a Christian home, um, went to church a lot, and honestly, my thought process was, hey, Jesus was a moral guy teaching people to be moral. Um, why did they put him to death for being moral? Like, I don't, he seemed like a nice guy. He was giving fish to people. He was breaking bread. He said, children, come sit on my lap. Like, why would you beat, crucify, and kill Mr. Rogers? Like, it didn't line up in my mindset. And what, what we see is this. John 3, verse 19 through 20. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that their deeds might be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested having been wrought in God. You know why we, we don't want Jesus to be the perfect embodiment of wisdom and truth? You know why we don't? Because he exposes us. You see, the light shines in the darkness of your heart and my heart. And he speaks the truth. And we see it, and we reject it. It is seen by us, but it's also rejected by us. All of humanity has said, okay, that's the truth. I, I know that's right, but, but honestly, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. You see, how do we respond when someone we know is right? Go back to junior high and high school get, days, right? When the smart kid in class said the right answer, how did you respond? I hate that kid. He's so stupid. Nice glasses. You know, like we would respond to tear him down. When someone says the morally right thing, like you've got this plan together, hey, we're going to go egg their house, we're going to wrap it, we're going to fork it, you know, like all in the front yard, it's going to be sweet, and then we're going to take cat food, and we're going to spread it all over their car, seen it done, it's terrible. You're like, we're going to do this thing, and, and, and you've got that one kid with that moral compass that's just out of whack, and he just goes, guys, um, I think that would be mean. And what do you say to that kid? What do you... What you what are you talking about? Do you need to go home? Like, I don't, like, we throw that kid under the bus. Why? Because we willingly reject that moral compass, that right answer, that moral right. And, and honestly, like, like, we can make fun of it in kind of funny ways, but honestly, like, we do it in, in really dark ways. In school, we say, okay, God, I'm going to choose a career path. And, and you can bless it, and I would love you to bless it, but, but honestly, God, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to pursue this field. I'm going to choose this major. And I want you, what I want from you is just to bless what I'm doing. We do it in dating. 
Some of you, you're just like, uh, well, well, what should I look for today? And I know there's these rules in the Bible, these like kind of moral compass things. I know that would be helpful. That would be wise in what to do. I know you've said those things, God. I know you're smart or something. But, but honestly, she's hot. And I'm just going to go for it. Or honestly, God, he, he took an interest in me. And so I'm just, no one else is. And so I know you've got a way that you're running this thing. I know you've got some wisdom on this deal. But, but look, you're not moving how I want you to. And some of you, it's going to be in work. Because you're going to get a job. And I've had friends do this. They get into a company. And the way that they run numbers isn't moral. And the things that they're asking you to do isn't right. And I've talked to a dad of some of our kids, and I've talked to a friend that was in the workforce that is um, now an engineer in Houston, and he said, look, the way that they're doing things and the things that they're asking me to do, it's going to bite them in the end. And now I'm in this tension. What do I do? Do I continue to make a good paycheck and stay with these people? Or do I choose to follow God, which will leave me without a job? And we see it in social situations. Like you, you hang out with your buddies and we're going to do this thing. And, and, and the bottom line is, uh, some of you kind of freshmen, sophomores, if, if you're in this room, what's, what's going to happen is you're going to be left alone on Friday night. Because you're going to ask yourself the question that they told you in youth group, what would Jesus do? And you're like, I don't care what Jesus would do. Like, I don't want to be alone on a Friday night. I don't give a rip what Jesus would do. I don't care about the stupid bracelet that I got in freaking fifth grade. Like, I don't care. And we say, God, you, you've set this world in wisdom. There's a wise way that we should interact it. But honestly, God, you don't know what you're talking about when it comes to my situation that I'm walking through right now. And Jesus speaks truth. He says, why do you not come to me? Because I speak the truth. I tell you how life should function. I tell you how life, if you live it this way, it will produce the greatest joy in your life. But you don't believe it. I don't believe it. We say, God, I'm going to choose to do my thing because it will produce what I want best. And the whole world does it. And the whole world is drowning in sin. And to that world that is drowning in sin, you know what Jesus does? It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to humanity. What did God do with all of his wisdom, all of his right answers, all of his, all of his information that could make you make a better decision, that could make you live a better life? What did he do with all of that wisdom? He didn't sit in heaven and say, hey, shape up or ship out. You're going to hell. He didn't do that. He sent his son to descend to us. And in his wisdom, he figured out a way to be both just and justifier. It would be just for Jesus to sentence all of us. But instead, he moved in grace and truth. He looks at us and says, yes, I know you're a sinner. I know you're drowning in your sin. But I'm going to be gracious to you. When I was five years old, I was um, playing with my cousin. My cousin was about the same age as me. And we were at the edge of this kind of bank of water and it was it was a cement bank and my parents were like looking at houses or something so we we're in this neighborhood and it was this lake in the neighborhood and we're we're getting to the side of it and we're playing that stupid game which is like how far can you go how far can you go you know and girls you're like I don't know what you're talking about guys like yes I know exactly what you're saying and and we're kind of on the edge and we're kind of like scooting our way in and scooting our way in and it came to a point where 
it was mossy and wet and algae kind of all over it. And I slipped in and I'm like, oh no, right? And I'm on the edge of it and I'm like holding on to this slick cement side going into the water. And I'm like five years old, so I'm freaking out. I'm like clawing my way up. And, and the more I would move, the more I would drown. And so I yelled at my cousin, who's my same age. He's born two days after me. His name's Greg. And I'm like, Greg, save me. He's five, like he's got no physical strength. So he reaches into me and I pull him in too. And we're both drowning in the water and we both yell out, help, help, help. And then suddenly I see my uncle from across the way and he looks at us and my uncle was a large man, like full belly, um, probably about 6'2", powerful. And he comes running jollily like across the way. And so, and so I'm trying to be serious in this moment, but all at the same time I'm like trying to enjoy like, like <laughs> he's running, like I've never seen him run. And <laughs> And, and he runs over to me, and I see him reach with his powerful hand, and he grabs my cousin and, like, throws him out. And he just, like, whoa, and, it, like, lands it. And he grabs me and pulls me out. And, and I, I look at him, and I'm just like, oh, my gosh. And he's like, are you boys okay? And I'm just like, I am now. You know, and I'm like, it was amazing to watch this man with all this power reach in and rescue us who are drowning. And that's what Jesus does for us. See, he's full of grace and truth. He's going to point out the sin in your heart and life. He is wise. He knows how you should live. But he's not going to leave you drowning in a pool. He's going to come in and flesh and reach out and save us. Do you know him? We can talk about the wisdom and the truth of God, but the bottom line is this. Have you personally put your faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you said, okay, God, I've blown it in so many ways, but I, I believe that you're enough. I'm not right. Will you save me? He will. He doesn't use his wisdom to beat you, but he will use it to guide you. If you come to him and say, nothing of myself I bring, only to your cross I cling. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you so much that that you came into this world to save us out of our sin to save us out of the situation that we are in, that although you laid the world in wisdom, we reject that wisdom. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not be people that continue to do that, that we wouldn't look to just live a moral life, we would look to live a a new life by putting our faith alone in you. And if you haven't done that, I would ask you, would you pray a simple prayer? Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Thank you for dying for my sins. I trust you with my life. If you have done that this morning, I'd encourage you to talk with someone. And for the rest of us, Lord, I know that we have rejected your wisdom. We have not always walked wisely. So Lord, I pray that we would come back to the cross, kneel our knees before you, and Father, that you would lead us with your wisdom and guidance and truth. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.